We've arrived at the 5.30 hour and a bit after on Sunday afternoon, and aren't we thankful and delighted that God has blessed us with health, with the power and strength of mind, that we have been able to come together and do that in a way in which it is our earnest interest that God shall be pleased and that we might glorify Him, the One who made us and who makes it possible for us to be with Him forevermore. It is good to come back together tonight, and as you may already notice on the wall behind me, we'll continue our discussion of that prophet known as Isaiah. In particular, we're looking at his writings, and we shall continue that tonight. Installment number nine. You may notice last time we ended in chapter 45, so we really will begin in chapter 46 this evening. And in so doing, that will take us really up through about chapter 52 will be at least the idea as we draw our lesson tonight a little bit later to its conclusion. But I hope along the way we'll be reminded of some things, not the least of which are some of the matters I might at least mention on this introductory slide. The book of Isaiah is known as the Messianic Prophet. And for good reason, so many elements in the book not only prophesied about the Christ, but prophesied about His kingdom and about the nature of His work. And in fact, Isaiah is one of the prophetical books in which more prophecies of the Christ are found than any other book of the Old Testament. Now, it's not the most number, at least in terms of density, but it is the most in terms of sheer number. Tonight, I think we will be invited again to reconsider how amazing it is that well over 700 years prior to the coming of the Lord, Isaiah had already written many matters, many truths. In fact, speaking of that, could I not already, even as we begin the lesson, turn your attention to chapter 52? Would you note with me verse number 7? And even as I read it, I hope that you will at least note how familiar it sounds. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Each of us are well acquainted with the truth that Paul quoted this in the Roman letter and applied it in the marvelous text of Romans chapter 10, in which there Paul would say, How beautiful are the feet of them which preach the gospel of peace. Here you may notice it was good tidings. Isn't that amazing to reflect then upon how that Paul could stretch back into the annals of history inspired history, and quote the greatness of some of these texts, and even make application in light of the gospel, and that he did. But tonight, as we revisit chapter 46, we will begin in that somewhat brief chapter, and do so in light of the following comments as lesson number one, or observation number one, in our study this evening. In the midst of this chapter, we find yet again that God's people had made some rather unfortunate choices. They had begun to behave and act in ways that were not wise at all. And in the midst of that discussion, God challenged Isaiah to say this to them. I'll begin reading in verse number 9 of Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I hope we're all somewhat mindful 
of the great teaching consideration that was brought before these people on that occasion. Remember, they had turned their attention in some ways to idols. They had turned their attention to various other forces, many of which they had made with their own hands. And God in the midst of that says, Look, there is none like me. There is none else. Now, no doubt, there were some who weren't too thrilled to hear that. Because isn't it true? Men have always wanted to make God in their image. Because man wants to tell God what to do and what to accept and what to believe. But yet, God, you and I realize, is the other way around. He instructs us how to be. He instructs us what to believe. And He instructs us then what circumstances to face and how to face them. Men have always had a tendency, haven't they, to try and make God in their image rather than the other way around. And isn't it true that that kind of issue and that circumstance was one that not only troubled ancient Israel, but oh, how our society and how our people today still find themselves attempting to make God in their image. You'll notice near the top of that slide, that one of the first things that God said in that text is this, Remember the former things of old. There was a sense in which what had been done in days long since past, from their perspective, was in fact far more right. Remember when the law was given on Mount Sinai? Do you remember there was a period of faithfulness during the time of Joshua? We have that record, of course, not only in parts of the book of Joshua, but overtly described to us in Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It might well then be, God says, remember the former things of old. And then He said this, I'm God. Our God is a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 20, that truth was set forward. And although again, God made it rather plain, it has always been a desire of men to to present other matters equal to Him, and that has never been successful, nor shall it ever be. Is it any wonder then in verse number 9, it closes by saying, there is none else. Isn't it rather intriguing how often men have had their ideas about matters which could compete with God and sometimes favorably in their own mind? Sometimes that comes from the teachings of science. Sometimes it comes from the teaching of other realms of human accomplishment. And yet through it all, God made it abundant through Isaiah. There is none else. No wonder verse number 10 then would say, look at what God can do. And might we ask, is any other entity, any other force capable of doing this? Declaring the end from the beginning. Now you and I know that time, of course, is not an issue that constrains God. He is, without, he is outside of time in that regard, isn't He? Now, you and I realize we're constrained by it. Are we not we told in Psalm 90, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength sorrow. The lifespan that you and I now enjoy upon earth. But yet we know that with God, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day to borrow the language of 2 Peter 3.8. Perhaps in the idea before us, doesn't it again remind us, He can declare the ancient times, the things that are not yet done. 
as you come near the close of that slide, could I point out how that this matter, I suppose, shall ever be a constant danger to the human family? I've invited you to notice perhaps the most famous passage that relates to this idea. Take it, of course, from that interesting book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, would go on to say in Proverbs 20, 24, Man's goings are of the Lord. How then shall a man understand his way? May I suggest that we, quite frankly, are rather clueless in terms of journeying along our way if our journey is not hand-in-hand with the Lord. This opening part of the lesson tonight then has been the singular place of God. Whether Old or New Testament, that seems to have been a matter that continues to be of prime issue. And may we, in strength and wisdom, ever understand the mightiness of verses like we have just read. In closing that slide, I suppose it would be easy to think then that this matter, that you'll notice back up in verse 5. I didn't begin reading there, but maybe now's the time to do it. Beginning in verse 5, God again asks the people, To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be like? Doesn't that sound familiar? Who are you going to make like unto me? And what kinds of idols or otherwise shall you declare equivalent to me? Next verse. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance. And he's about to describe their actions of actually constructing an idol. Today, you and I realize that probably that by itself is not the greatest of temptations to us. But there is, of course, something that is its equivalent pointed out to us in Colossians 3, 5. Well, there you and I are told that covetousness is idolatry. And in the language presented, of course, one is the predicate adjective of the other one, meaning that they are equivalent, reminding us that when you and I stoop to matters of covetousness, we have become guilty of idolatry. Therefore, anything that we would place between us and service to God has become our idol, And that, of course, would lead us into error. Wasn't it true in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19, with the works of the flesh, that among those matters listed was idolatry, and that'll be enough to condemn souls, you see, to eternal doom. The singular place of God certainly is a beautiful theme. All throughout the Bible, the sovereign character of God is so majestically presented to us And maybe it is in that light that Lesson 2 almost directly follows it. Because I've entitled it Rational Behavior. Isn't it true that God would demand of each of us, and in fact of each person, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. To borrow the wording of Isaiah 1.18, Throughout both Old and New Testament, we read about the desire that God has to appeal to our consideration of reasonability, that we would appreciate the nature of the evidence for Him and proceed to serve Him out of recognition of who He is, what He has done, and the features of what He has revealed. Now, to say that, though, is one thing, and we all understand that many have selected to do something different. 
I've already noted tonight, and we each know it well, that the people of Israel, sadly and almost shockingly, came to be guilty of idolatry. The very people who, in fact, had their ancestors standing at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the great law of Moses and who had witnessed God's great actions on their behalf, who had delivered them in the days of the judges, who had been with the efforts of men like King David and others. And yet, by the time we reached the days of Isaiah, they had stooped to the point of constructing idols like this. Let me revisit verse 6 of Isaiah 46 with you. They, that's God's people, lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. And he standeth, from his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. When you and I hear that, it almost sounds humorous and unbelievable to think that here you, in fact, hire a man, a goldsmith, to take some gold which you have provided him and to shape it into something which you then will carry, placing it wherever you would wish to. It cannot move on its own. It is unable to carry anything forward or do that which is any ways of its own accord. Not only that, it cannot answer. To hear those kinds of words challenging the people of Israel of that day, could I invite you to hold your finger there and listen as I read an excerpt from Psalm 115. Now again, this was written at a slightly different point in time, but Psalm 115 will in many ways describe this even more directly. I'll begin reading in verse number 4 of that chapter, Psalm 115, verse number 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. And then following is this beautiful verse. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Haven't we each been somewhat impressed with that description of idolatry in Psalm 115? All of these elements that they place on the idols, noses and ears and hands, but yet they can't smell nor see nor handle anything. They are completely powerless, and if the idol moves, you have to move it. What kind of God does that sound like? Inept, incapable, and rather worthless you can begin to see that I've only noticed two passages, one from Psalm 115 and one from Isaiah 46, and yet many others might be listed. If you'd like to study some additional ones, you might read Habakkuk chapter 2 at some point. But as you and I continue our lesson, might we at least point out some of these things about rational behavior? 
God pointed out, you ought to have enough sense to know better than this. You're the one that is carving this idol, and yet you bow down and worship it? What sense does that make? What kind of rational consideration is this? You and I certainly would desire to worship a great God, one who can hear us, who can carry out answers to our prayers, one who can bring about those matters consistent with His will. And of course, that's the one that you and I honor and pray to and praise. In light of this discussion of rationality, could I point out Jesus was a strong proponent of it. I've mentioned for your consideration Matthew chapter 12, as well as Matthew chapter 22, both of which point out that Jesus challenged those of His day as He asked them questions. Isn't this the matter of reasonability? And they had to answer yes, if they were honest. God does not invite us then to do what's unreasonable. By faith, you and I proceed, Hebrews chapter 11, to do that which God has revealed. And if we shall reasonably approach Him, we shall understand the nature of it, acting by consideration of faith in light of those matters. Lesson number three. Even after these two, why don't we then come to another chapter? Chapter 47. In the midst of this chapter, though again we will be somewhat selective in our choices of it, I'd like to direct you to verse 13, as you and I will note in just a moment. May I point out again that the people of Israel's day at the time of Isaiah, they not only had turned to matters constructed in idolatry, we're about now to find that they also had given interest to astrology or what we would call that. Let's now read that verse. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that come upon thee. Can you hear the challenge of God to the people of Isaiah's day? Look, these stargazers that you turn to, see if they'll save you. These monthly prognosticators, see if they can save you. What about these astrologers? Let's see if they can in fact bring salvation or deliverance to you from these enemies that are coming upon you. Among other things, isn't it an interesting matter that although we are reading about matters and events descriptive of people over 2,700 years ago, there are still many individuals who find not only pastime in it, but sometimes great interest in matters connected to astrology. What do we mean by the word astrology? I gave you a definition at the very top of that slide. That which is the study of the movements and relative positions of celestial bodies interpreted as having influence on human affairs of the natural world. That is to say, the things that take place in your day or mine, so these people would say, is dictated by the positions of the stars or by the particular movements of them or by other considerations related to the celestial objects. You may have heard someone speak about how that things there determining the positions and influence and will of people here. Now, this isn't new as you can tell. The people of Isaiah's day had some interest in this matter. Let's devote just a few moments 
and at least speak about the following. You might be um, somewhat shocked. I know that in part I was when you look at a table like this. If you're much like myself, you may be under the impression that there is just a very minute number of percentage of people who have any interest in this. I believe we may be wrong. A poll less than 10 years ago resulted in these numbers. Again, the print may be too small to read the details, but let me just point out a few of the features of it. What it purported to check was what percentage of people in America are genuinely such that they believe in what you and I would recognize as astrology, that the positions or the movements of the stars literally determine what's taking place upon earth, influencing people's movements and their decisions and their interactions with others, literally bringing about changes in those behaviors. Well, among other things, what those numbers on that slide point out to you is that among all adults, it's 42%. That's a fairly high number by itself. But here's the most shocking part. Of that 42%, how many religious people believe in this? That is to say, would claim some interest in matters related to the Bible, for example, and at the same time claim to believe in astrology. As you look down that slide... What you'll readily find is the top word is Christian and the number is 37%. That would again mean that over a third of people who are otherwise Christian would nonetheless say there's something to this. There's something to astrology and there's something that one must recognize. For that reason, why don't we revisit what was it that God through Isaiah said to the people of that day? May I again invite you to notice the question that was asked and the way it was worded. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let's stop right there. To weary means to grow tired of. What God's people were doing is they were checking with this group. Well, what do you think about the coming issue or what may otherwise have been said? And then they checked with this group and another group. And among those in which they had some confidence were the stargazers those that, that were, again, astrologers. He went on to say, Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, let them stand up and save you. Now, as you'll notice later in the chapter, God was, in essence, being rhetorical. Look, they can't save you. There's nothing to this. What God was pointing out to them is this weariness in your counsels is due in part to who you're getting counsel from. Why don't you come and ask of me, God would say, and why don't you in fact follow the advice which I've given and rest assuredly in the wholeness and the soundness of that. The human family has often turned to the wrong places to try and find their answers, haven't they? Whether it was stargazers back then whether it was other peoples that you and I have noted in the Sunday morning Bible class, especially in the book of Judges. But the point still remains. Let's turn back to the previous slide and conclude those comments like this. You see, the danger connected to those matters then is restated and reworded and emphasized in the New Testament as well. You and I must be cautious then. And recognize that verses like Galatians 5 verse 20 still 
place a condemnation on the pursuit of what we would call the martial arts, the magical arts connected to these kinds of things. For that matter, might we be under the impression that the cults which are now so active in America and quite often that have particular things which they uphold and condone in cases include the relation to monthly prognosticators. And you and I must recognize that such work is not wholesome. It is not of the recognition of the Bible for what do you and I learn in the Word of God? Joshua 24, 15, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. He didn't say anything about that being determined by the stars, about that being determined by the other considerations of the celestial bodies. We each have the opportunity to choose, to make our declaration as to where we shall stand. And these things are not determined by the positions of the stars and by the matters connected to that movement. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 20, Paul would write to the church at Corinth, reminding them of the opportunity that was theirs to select the circumstances of their life. And nothing about that has changed. What about if we look forward in our text even to some additional chapters, not the least of which would be the furnace of affliction, highlighted for our consideration in chapter 48. I suppose that this particular element of the discussion of that book was surely some of the most troubling to those people, and it might well be some of the most disturbing to us. But I hope that as we develop it, we will be reminded of just how strong a consideration this is. Let's begin it like this. Would you read with me in verse number 10 of Isaiah 48? In fact, let me begin reading in verse number 9. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? In the midst of that description we find God making reference to the furnace of affliction. Now, I believe we can easily imagine the language itself and what it reminds, at least for you and me. If we may at least fill in some of those comments that God said. Notice again in verse 11, He said, I am going to do this. What God was going to do was send them to captivity. What he was going to do was to refine them with hardship, with difficulty, at the hands, you see, of these foreign people. Captivity was not going to be pleasant. It was not going to be comfortable. It was not going to be convenient. In fact, it was going to be terrible. And God says, I'm going to do it. Why? So that you might be refined in the furnace of affliction. Let's develop that like this. You could already see it on the slide. We each understand so very well that a good parent, a godly parent, will discipline his or her children. It isn't pleasant. It certainly isn't fun. It's in fact quite painful for the parent, even more so in all likelihood than for the, than for the child. But the fact is, out of love, you do it. 
Out of love, you do that knowing the change in behavior that shall be wrought by it and the betterment that shall result in the growing child because of it. But again, might we say, the parent disciplines for those reasons. May we ask, does God discipline His children? To ask that question in some ways is to answer it. Could I invite you to notice that not only in this passage, for is it that the idea? God says, I will refine you in the furnace of affliction due to the fact that I want your behavior to be better. I want your consideration to be more godly, more healthy, more noteworthy for your benefit. At this point, might you and I comment that when they went into captivity, they were blessed to come out 70 years later. But never again did they have as much problem with idolatry as they had had before. They did learn something. They were somewhat refined. That's not to say they never again lapsed into evil of any way. But at least they had been somewhat disciplined. Would you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and allow the Word of God to again bring some messages to you and me in the heart of the New Testament as we reflect on this same subject. Again, we're asking, does God discipline His children today? Does He allow to you and to me matters to come which are not always pleasant and are not always nice and convenient? Maybe that brings about some hardship. Maybe it brings about some difficulty and challenge. Maybe you and I will pass through the furnace of affliction. Let's allow God to speak about this. Hebrews chapter 12, let me begin reading in that chapter in verse number 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That verse alone says that if God loves you and me, he will chasten us when necessary. He will rebuke us when necessary. Let's read on. If ye endure chastening... God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? The Hebrew writer would ask if we, after our fathers chastised us and corrected us, and yet we reverence them, we respect them, then when God does it to us, ought not we respect Him? Ought not we acknowledge Him and thus testify that we too appreciate the nature of that correction? The verse goes on to say, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I would suggest to you and me that at least that set of concepts should encourage us to have a renewed perspective on hardship. When things come into your life or mine that may be unpleasant, that may not be what we would have preferred, 
Could it be the chastening of God directing us so that when we emerge from that, we shall be better than we were before, and we shall be more equipped in His service than we were before? I ask all of that because in Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13, among those passages we just read, that was the idea that the Hebrew people were to take to heart. Today, I hope when you and I find ourselves in situations that, again, are not so much to our choosing, may we acknowledge that it might well be the correction of the God who loves us, desiring to chasten us in such a way that we might be improved and better. That slide closes with the furnace of affliction, and we have but one remaining. I've entitled it, God's Tomorrow. As you begin to look at chapter 49, all the way to chapter 52, chapters 49 to 52 of Isaiah are such sweet presentations. I merely wish to summarize some of what we find in these chapters, but in so doing, listen to how bright it appears. Now, we've just spoken about a furnace of affliction, so you might wonder, what is so great about this by itself? May I say that one of the matters which Isaiah held before the people in such beauty was the fact that though captivity is coming, there will be a restoration. There will be a remnant that shall return, and the hope of all of heaven will rest upon their continuance and faithfulness, for the Messiah shall come through them the one that shall bless all people of the earth. Let's look at a few of the ways that those matters are presented. In Isaiah 49, verse number 8, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritage." You may recognize that's quoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul again quotes this and says, Today is the day of salvation. To those people, Isaiah held up before him, There is coming a deliverance. There is coming a salvation. And don't you know that God will provide it? As Paul utilized that in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, Today... And how often have preachers used that as a part of their invitation? Today indeed is the day of God's salvation in which He extends it. Not only that text in Isaiah 49, 8. Look over at Isaiah 49, verse 18. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all as with an ornament, and bind them on thee as a bride doeth. For thy waste and thy desolate places and the land of thy destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants, and they that swallowed thee up shall be far away. They that swallowed thee up, those that were your oppressors and enemies, they will be taken away and you will be blessed for a return. As you look even beyond that, turn over to chapter 51. And let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. 
Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation, for a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of thy people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles that the isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. Do you hear the positive note in this? That's one of the beautiful things about the Word of God, isn't it? It will proclaim the needful negative, but it will always hold out the appropriate positive. That was true then. Although the furnace of affliction would need to be trodden and in fact emerged from, oh, what waited beyond the other side. Perhaps one more in Isaiah 52, verses 7, 8, and 9. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Did you hear? God's going to bring it again. And now, verse number 9, Break forth into joy. Sing together. Ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted His people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Now God spoke those words from a perspective of what would be the future. They hadn't emerged from captivity yet, but there would come a time that they would, and when that happened, how blessed they'd be. It was a time of singing, a time of joy, a time of celebration. Today, in many ways, can't certain similarities to that be said of us? God's tomorrow is always brighter than earth's today. It's always that way. It's always been that way. Among the seven churches of Asia addressed in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, we remember that God said to them, If you shall be faithful to me, then you can come over and live with me in my tomorrow. Revelation 3, verses 19 to 21. Is it any wonder that you and I as Christians hold out the grandest of hopes relative to tomorrow? Because we know that God's tomorrow is far better than any today. As you and I close that slide together, doesn't it remind us in some ways of the conviction felt by David in Psalm 37? The positive spirit that was able to, to be so powerful there in that positive spirit you and I remember that not only the Lord gave an invitation in Matthew 11, but all throughout the Bible. You and I have every confidence that if we shall love the Lord and serve Him in faithful obedience here, we have every reason to look forward to His tomorrow. Let's close our lesson tonight by noting as we've arrived at chapter 52, we are fully in the midst of the second portion of the book of Isaiah, and in that passage we have found the messianic nature of it. How often did Paul quote these verses and refer to the gospel? How often was it a description of Jesus? Although it's slightly ahead of where we're coming, may I say it's only going to get deeper and more wonderful as we arrive at chapters 53 and following next time. As we do that, I hope that we've been reminded of the sweetness of the words of Isaiah, the hope that it held out for those of that day, and the hope that it holds out for us too. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly that would have a desire to perhaps approach the God of heaven in a public way, we'd like to offer that invitation.
remember that in this invitation that God through Isaiah extended, He pleaded with them. Sadly, they turned to other places and sources such as idols. But God reminded them there is none else. If you and I are wise today, we shall not forget that truth either, that there is only Him. This evening, if we could be of some help, some assistance, we'd like to offer that Lord's invitation. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing the announced song. If you've never become a Christian, would you please with earnestness think if you've arrived at the point in life to where that's something that you know you need to do. Don't wait another day because you see tomorrow may never come. You and you and I know that just as the considerations of the hope held out in the days of Isaiah, we too can have it if we shall place our confidence and trust in the one who died at Calvary for us. That plan of salvation continues to read, to believe upon the Lord and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you have been faithful at one point, but as of today or not, why don't you perhaps listen with earnestness and acuteness to that which was said in these chapters tonight, in which Isaiah urged them in the earnestness of the moment to turn only to God, and you and I would wish of ourselves to do the same. If we could thus be of some help and assistance tonight, we'd love to do that. If you'd like to acknowledge sins known publicly, make confession of them, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf and wrap around you the arms of encouragement and love that you might be faithful from this day forward. Tonight, if we could be of some benefit or assistance, won't you come while we stand and sing the selected song?